So a couple years ago, actually about a year and a half ago, a documentary series called The Last Dance came out on ESPN's uh, streaming service and eventually made its way to Netflix. And The Last Dance is all about the Chicago Bulls back during the 1990s, so the Michael Jordan era of the Chicago Bulls. And they interviewed all the players, they told the story of how this team came together, and then the, the kind of setup for the series was this is all about their last season together, the last dance before the team kind of parted ways. The coach was leaving. A lot of the players um, had decided that they were going to leave as well if the coach was leaving. And so this is their last run at a championship win for the Chicago Bulls. It would represent their sixth uh, championship victory with Michael Jordan at the helm of the team as you know one of the best players on the team. And they interviewed all the players. They told their stories and, and kind of talked about this team. And one of the things they kept coming back to over and over again, of course, was Michael Jordan as this phenomenal basketball player, probably the greatest of all time, um, arguably the greatest of all time. But one of the things that stands out about Michael Jordan was his incredible mindset about the game and his desire to win. And he was, you could see it in these game situations where they'd be down, you know, right at the end of the game, they'd be going into this uh, they have to win this game to advance on to the next round or something like that. And it would, he had this mindset where he was convinced that he would win. Give him the ball. I will win this for, the, for our team. And over and over again, he proved that to be true. He had this killer mindset, this confidence, and this just win-at-all-costs mentality. And his mindset made him a great player. And I want to think about the concept of mindset for a few moments. The way you think about a situation you're going into uh, matters, right? Your mindset makes a big difference in whether or not you will be successful at whatever you're trying to do. If you're trying a new thing, if you're trying a new um, activity, a new sport, and you go in with a mindset that says, um, I am not going to be able to figure this out. I don't think I can do this. Um, you, odds are you will make that happen. <laughs> You won't be able to figure it out. You won't be able to do it. Your minds are powerful. This is something I'm constantly talking about with my kids when, when we're trying something new, you know, whether it's learning how to ride a bike or, or trying some new activity that they've never tried before. Um, I know that a lot of times at the level of their minds, the struggle happens, right? So can I do this? I'm not going to be able to figure this out. I can't do this. That mindset will probably result in them not being successful at the activity that they're trying to do. So I'm trying to say, hey, you can do this. You, it might be hard the first time, but you can figure this out. I know you can do this. And I want to instill that kind of idea that their mind is powerful. What you think in your mind largely determines how successful you, you will be at the given activity. Now, I want to ask, flip the question around a little bit and think about it from a spiritual perspective this morning. We're talking about trying new activities or winning basketball games and things like that. But is your mindset important for your spiritual life? Is the way that you think about God or the way you think about yourself or the way you think about the world, is that important when it comes to your spiritual life? We think, I'm, I'm hearing murmurs of yes, and so I think we, we all agree that that is important. So this affects things like prayer. When you pray, right, you close your eyes or have whatever you do when you pray, and, and you think about God, and you think about yourself in relationship with God, that is very much a mindset thing. What is my mindset about God? What is my mindset about myself? How does God view me? There's so much about your mindset in there that has 
implications for the way that prayer time is going to go or what you even think about God, how that feels to speak to your creator. That has everything to do with your mindset. The word mindset does not show up in scripture, by the way. But there is a phrase that is the, that, that same word but flipped the other way, and it's set your mind. And this shows up in Colossians chapter 3, which is where we're going to spend our time this morning. So if you have Bibles, devices, whatever, go ahead and get there to Colossians chapter 3. It'll also be on the screen behind me. I want to encourage you to think about this idea of setting your mind and, and the importance of doing this, right? Set your mind is an unusual phrase, and it shows up. We, we use the phrase mindset or the word mindset, but it's very much the same idea. Set your mind. Put your mind on something. And this verse, as we'll be reading in a few moments, say, set your mind on things above. Set your minds on things that are above. When you think about this phrase, set your mind, and we're going to talk a lot more about this this morning, we, we set certain things, right? We set our clocks. We set a timer, right? We, we um, set something, and then it stays where we, where we put it, right? And Scripture is going to tell us today that our minds can be and need to be set as well. They need to be put somewhere. They need to be placed at, on something. They need to be put in the correct place. And this has everything to do with, with how we live the Christian life. It is our mindset or where we set our minds that determines so much about the way we face temptation or the, the level of peace that we feel when we're going through difficult times, or fear. Whether or not you experience fear has so much to do with where you set your mind. We're in this series right now called Love God With All Your Mind. And we started last Sunday talking about this idea that that your mind is powerful, but it's also fallen, right? That we exist in this world that is every aspect of this world has been affected by sin, including our own minds. And it needs transformation, And Christ transforms us, Christ changes us, but we still have this mental battle that takes place. And this phrase, love God with all your mind, comes from the Gospels, comes from Jesus saying, this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And we want to focus specifically for these next four weeks, or this is week two of four, on this idea of how we love God with our minds. How do we love God with the things that we think about, the things that we dwell on, what we allow to enter our minds, and what is true, what is not true, right? We believe these things sometimes about the world and about people around us, about ourselves, where we believe lies even. We're, we're talking to ourselves in negative ways that do not reflect who we actually are and how God sees us, right? And this stuff matters to God. In fact, it's a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual battle in our minds where the enemy, the accuser of, of the saints, as scripture describes Satan, is accusing us constantly of, of, of not measuring up to who we are and, and, and who we should be and things like that. And we need to actually, as we talked about last Sunday, take every thought captive and teach it to obey Christ. We need to be aware of what we dwell on. We should pray about these things and we should dwell on what is true instead of what is false. So that's last Sunday. If you missed that, you can go to our website, liferoads.org, or look us up on YouTube, or even on Spotify, and listen to that message on there if you, if you missed last week's message. But with this kind of in our minds here, let's look at Colossians 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 17 of Colossians chapter 3. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's a lot in this passage, and we're not going to be able to cover this passage in depth, but I want to cover some kind of highlights for us, starting with these first few verses. Um, in fact, when we, when we taught on, I taught on this passage a number of years ago, and we took three weeks, I think, for this one passage that we read, because there's so much going on there, and there's a lot we can talk about. But it starts with this idea of setting your mind. That phrase, set your mind, translated in our English Bible, set your mind, other translations will say set your affections. It's one word in the Greek, and it's hard to translate, and, and be, because it's hard to translate, there's three words there, set your mind or set your affections. It's this Greek word, phreneo, and it occurs 30 times in the Bible, about, I think there's 29 or 30 times, almost all of them by the Apostle Paul, and it can be used for positively or negatively. It's the, it's the verse, actually, that Jesus uses to talk about uh, when he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you're thinking about things of man, not things of God. This is the same word. It's, it's, it's this idea of considering or thinking or deciding something. It's, it's, it has to do with what you're doing inside your head or what you're doing inside your heart, where you're placing it, what it's, what it's on, what it's about. Paul uses it, uses it as well in Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 5 and 6. I want to read that to you quickly and we'll come back to what we're talking about here. Romans 8, 5 and 6 says... For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. It's the same word. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. If we're summarizing this whole passage in Colossians chapter 3 that we just read, we would say it goes like this. Your Christian identity, if you are a follower of Christ, if you're one of God's children, if you're, if you're part of his family, your Christian identity, who you are, 
determines what you do. But it starts with this idea of who you are. And this is why Paul does this over and over again in his letters. He'll talk about what Jesus has done for us. Who you are now because of Jesus. Jesus changes everything. You were a new creation in Christ Jesus. And because that is true, here's how you should live. And then he gives these commands and these instructions about what a Christian lifestyle should look look like, but it comes from your sense of who you are. If you want to understand how to live, we need to first understand who we are. And he says, you have been raised with Christ. Because that's true, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 3 is, is such a strange but powerful idea. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's saying what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you, when Christ died on the cross, those of all of us who are in Christ died with him. He says, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Can you imagine being told that phrase, you died? Right? In any other context outside of scripture, we'd go, that is startling. What? I died? Like that, this is something in like a science fiction show, right? This is something like in a, in a movie, like this pivotal scene in the movie where it's like, you died. Wow. What? I died? He says, you died and your life is hidden now in Christ. So when Christ was raised from the dead, we also were raised to new life with him. And then verse five says, but put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You died, but there's something still that needs to be killed in you, right? It's a put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So in other words, we have a zombie situation here, right? This is, he said, there's, you died, you're raised with Christ, there's new life, but then there's something in you that is earthly, that's that doesn't match this new life and needs to be put to dead death. So you've got this walking dead situation here, right? There's something going on in your life that needs to be put to death. And if I've learned anything from the probably more zombie movies than a pastor should have watched, um, I know that zombies are hard to kill, right? What do you do when you got to get rid of a zombie? You get aim for the head, right? You see it's all coming together here, right? We're talking about the mind here. We're talking about thinking and, right? We have to aim for the head. We have to aim for the brain, the the way of thinking and stuff like that, right? So the Christian ethic, how we live as followers of Christ, the Christian lifestyle, the Christian code of morality comes from who we are. And and the who we are, where the rubber hits the road, is what we think about ourselves, what we believe we are. There's a great book called Atomic Habits by a writer named James Clear. It's not a Christian book, but it's just a book that's all about breaking habits, building habits, you know, developing good habits, and getting rid of bad habits. And really, really great book, really well-researched, written by James Clear. And in this book, he talks about <clears throat> outcome-based habits versus identity-based habits. And he says, identity-based or outcome-based habits are about what you want to achieve. I want to do this thing over here. This is the outcome I want. 
I'm going to develop a habit that will get me to that outcome. But he says identity-based habits go deeper, and it has to, it has to do with, what, with who we are and what you believe about yourself. And so the way he illustrates this, identity-based versus outcome-based, is someone who's trying to quit smoking. I'm trying to quit smoking. They're offered a cigarette by somebody and they say, no thanks, I'm trying to quit. This is an outcome-based habit. This has to do with the goal they're trying to get to. He says, another alternative, an example of an identity-based habit is someone's offered a cigarette and they say, no thanks, I'm not a smoker. Right? This is what they believe about themselves, what they're saying about themselves versus what they're trying to accomplish. I'm trying to quit, outcome-based. No, who I am is I'm not a smoker. And so that's why I'm not doing this. And there's a lot of relevance for the Christian life here. Who we are determines the kind of things that we do. There, I came across a fantastic article in preparation for this message uh, written back in the 1970s by a guy named C.F.D. Mole. He was a British scholar, and he was talking about this, the, the, the way that we think about our Christian life and this tension that exists between the kind of life that God's calling us to live and how we feel about this. I'm going to read you a selection of this article. It's called The New Life in Colossians 3, 1 through 17. He says, the strange thing about the new life claimed by Christians is that they have it and have it not. They have yet to become what, as they claim, they already are. Not surprisingly, this causes tension within and criticism without. Critics outside will say that Christians use the language of idealism, but that their lives sometimes do not measure up even to the lives of those who make no religious claims. They speak of the new life, but they do not seem to have gotten as far as the best of the old. Christians themselves correspondingly find that the hymns and prayers that they use and the sermons they listen to express a level of experience far above their actual feelings or attitudes or experiences. So that, that if they are conscientious and sensitive, they're in danger of suffering from a chronic sense of guilt for falling below their own professions. One may argue that the sense of guilt is wrong, but that attention should exist as inevitable. It is due to nothing less than the incarnation. Christians, the Christian claim for the Christian is that they have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. And yet, because he has a physical body and feelings, he remains vulnerable to what in Galatians is called the present evil age. So he's torn in two directions. The preacher tells him what he could not do for himself has already been done for him by God and that he has only to accept with gratitude the finished work of Christ and yet the same preacher is always exhorting him to do better and telling him that his performance does not match up to his calling. In a nutshell, the Christian command is a perplexing one. Become what you are. Become what you are. This is, this is the call to the Christian life, is that who we are in Christ changes everything about us but now we got to become who we are. We, we, we move through this life in a way where we're learning to be more and more faithful to what God is calling us and the, to have an identity and a, or practices that match with our identity. And then the scripture that we read describes this idea of things that we take off, things that we should put away, and things that we put on. It's almost this clothing imagery, he says. In, uh, I think that shows up in 
Yeah, verse 12, put on then, and then he talks about putting off the old self in verse 9, right? That there are things that we need to put on and things that we need to, to take off. And in it, he describes this kind of process of, of growth, and he talks about, in the beginning, sexual immorality. He says that our, the, the way that we live our life should match up with this new calling, and he talks about this idea of of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, this disordered desire that, that wants to fulfill its desires outside the bounds of what God calls us to. And then he goes on to talk about anger um, and the way that we relate to other people as well. And even telling the truth, he says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This idea here, these things that we get rid of and things that we put on have to do, again, with the identity. And there's reminders constantly through this about who we are. Since you've put off the old self with its practices, you've put on the new self, this is how you should live. He talks about the way that we relate to each other and and specifically mentions um, anger, obscene talk, he says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and if, if our culture, if our world took these kind of things seriously, I think it would change a lot about the way that we relate to each other. Um, the level of anger that people tend to have towards each other is pretty substantial. I, I read, I, I know that, um, well, I came across this article about someone who, here's the headline, man hits woman on way to anger control class. This has happened in 2008, a 27-year-old man in Minnesota um, was on his way to his anger management class. It says he pleaded guilty to fifth-degree assault charges for losing his temper on the way to class. So according to the criminal complaint, this young man was waiting at a bus stop in August when he harassed a 59-year-old woman. Witnesses say he yelled, why don't you show me some respect at the woman? And the complaint says that when she took out her cell phone to call police, he punched her in the face. When a 63-year-old man tried to stop him, this guy hit him with a blue folder, and then he ran and he dropped the folder. So the police were able to track him down because they opened up the folder, and it was his homework from anger management class. It had his name on there and his anger management homework, right? So then he was, anyway, he was sentenced to 120 days in jail after that. We're thinking about the idea of anger and the way that anger is so easy to pass on to other people. You know, in our culture, the, the algorithms, you know, and that the determine what we see on social media, what, what shows up in our feeds, they're really primed to anything that someone could get mad about. They know that that is a lot more contagious than something like that would make you happy. Here's a picture of a beautiful sunset. It gets viewed less than here's something that made me so mad at the store I went to the other day, right? The algorithm will show you those kinds of things because anger is contagious. It will spread faster than, uh, than joy. And we have to be, as followers of Christ, that this doesn't match our new identity. This doesn't match who we are in Christ. We, we need to get rid of um, this anger and, and instead replace it with the peace of God. This Christian sexual ethic as well is, is such an important thing for us to consider that, that we, this matters. This part of our life matters that Christians seek purity because of who we are in Christ, that we 
follow Jesus with every aspect of our lives, including our sexuality. And Christians get accused regularly of having too narrow a view of of sexuality, right? And I I would disagree with that. I would say it's not narrow, it's sacred. We, We believe that this matters to God. It's created by God. It's a special thing. It's not common and to be um, experienced with just anybody, that God designed even this aspect of our lives and our greatest fulfillment in that area of our life is to follow his design. So there's things that we take off, things that we put on. And I remember being a kid and getting a new pair of tennis shoes when I was a kid, and I, I don't know if this is something you can all relate to, but I was pretty sure when I put on those new tennis shoes, I got rid of the old ones that had grass stains on them and scuffs and things, and the tread had completely worn off the bottom. And then I put on those new tennis shoes and laced those things up. I was sure that I could jump higher and run faster with those things on. I was like, this changes everything, right? I got these new shoes on, especially I did end up getting a pair of Air Jordans back in the 90s during those Michael Jordan days. And oh my goodness, I was sure I was a you know, 20% better basketball player with those shoes on than I was before I got them. And while that wasn't true of me, it is true of us when we think about our identity in Christ. When we put on these new things that we're told to put on, we're told to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. When we do that, it, it really does change everything for us. It really does. If we, if we can think about ourselves as who we are in Christ and the things that we get rid of and the things that we then put on, these things are transformative. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We want to bear with one another, and we want to be forgiving of each other. And then we're talking, there's a portion about singing in here, that we need to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And we're going to have a chance to do that one more time before we're done today, where we're going to be singing together and, and celebrating. This is an important part of our Christian life. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And if you have a complaint against somebody, we need to forgive them. And this too is, comes from our identity. Scripture says that as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The call to forgiveness for followers of Christ, when, when someone hurts us, someone wrongs us, the, the call is for us to forgive them. And this comes from our identity. This is hard though, right? To forgive someone who has wronged you in a, in a deeply wounding way, a deeply hurtful way, this is not easy. But this is the call, and the call comes from our, our identity. As Christ has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You will never be called to forgive someone more than what you've been forgiven. God forgave you of your sin for those who are in Christ. And because of that, we can forgive. We can release other people from any sense of obligation or needing to get even with them. Forgiveness doesn't mean we need to be back in relationship with that person necessarily, but it means to release them of the obligation of repayment of trying to get even and and things like this. And again, this is so hard, and this is where our mindset plays such a powerful role. And one of the ways we do that, 
I said last week we need to dwell on what is true. If we're going to have our minds, you know, if our minds love God, part of how we do that is replacing the lies with the truth. And the way that we do that is to let the words of Christ dwell in us richly. That's verse 16. That was our theme a couple years ago about talking about spiritual growth and our spiritual practices, our disciplines, is that we let the words of Christ dwell in us richly. We engage with God's word because this is one of the ways that we are reminded of what is true. This is how we set our mind on things above. This is one of our key ways that we do that, one of these key practices that we do. Then he mentions as well the importance of gratitude in this, that one of the things that we put on is this life characterized by practicing gratitude. He says it twice in this passage. Be thankful and also giving thanks in your heart to the Lord. People have found that the more you practice gratitude, the more you focus on what you are grateful for, the better your outlook is on life. You, you actually begin to train your brain to look for things to be thankful for. If you express them, some people will write them down in a journal or something. These are the things that I'm thankful for, and they'll write those things down. And the more you do that, the more you practice the art of gratitude, the more grateful you become. You know, the less uh, of a negative outlook you might have on the world even. This gratitude thing is su- such an important part of of life and what Christians are called to do. We've been given so much. We have so much to be thankful for. So let's practice that gratitude. We've been talking about how our new way of living comes from our new identity. And I want to give you a little recap of these identity pieces that we've covered through this passage, reminders through this text. I wrote them all down here in my notes. He says this about you, and I want you to hear this for you personally. If you were a follower of Christ this morning, this is true of you. If you're not a follower of Christ this morning, this can be true of you. You're invited to experience this reality for yourself. Here's what the text has said. You have been raised with Christ. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life. And when he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. You have put off the old self. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Christ is in you. You are God's chosen one, holy and beloved. You are forgiven by God. You are called his people. You are a part of one body. This comes from these identity pieces that some of these we just read. We're going to reread Colossians 3, 1 through 4, because I think this is so key to understanding the whole idea. And we need to make sure that we're setting our mind on the correct thing here. It says this, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him, in glory. Set your minds on things above. Um, for years, there was a, an infomercial that would come on TV, and it was for a rotisserie chicken maker. And you'd take the chicken, you'd put it on the spike things. And for, for those of you who are like around my age or older, you will remember the tagline here. So here's 
the phrase that got repeated over and over again in the commercial. And if you remember it, say it with me, okay? So, uh, rotisserie chicken maker said it and... Oh my goodness, that was amazing. I did not expect that. You, for, you knew it. Said it and forget it. Now that seems like horrible advice, actually, uh, for that rotisserie chicken maker. Like how long can you forget it, right? Is it going to just burn to a crisp? Is it going to be just cold? Maybe the timer will go off, but then you have cold chicken that's not safe to eat anymore. I think forgetting it seems like bad advice for that rotisserie chicken maker. And I think it's also bad advice for the Christian life. We don't set it and forget it. I think, we, I think with this way of, of thinking about the Christian life, set your mind. This is something you probably do once, kind of in a moment, and then regularly. And I think kind of like forgiveness. We were talking about forgiveness as well, that this is like, this is a big decision once, and then smaller decisions later. And I think for us in the Christian life, it's a similar thing. We, we set our minds once. We decide, and I hope we do that together this morning, that I'm going to set my mind on things above. I'm going to realize who I am. I'm going to realize what Jesus has done for me. And then guess what? You're going to forget again tomorrow. And so you should do it again tomorrow as well. And this is part of our Christian practice. This is part of what we do and why we do this regularly. One of the most often repeated commands in Scripture is remember because we're so forgetful. This is why we need things like Scripture, regular spiritual disciplines. This is why we need to sing. This is why we do this every Sunday when we gather and we lift up our voices and sing praises to God is because we, we need it. This is part of how those truths are put not just in our heads or in our mouths, but in our hearts, right, and deep into our minds. Tim Keller talks about uh, this phrase, you are about our life being hidden in Christ. And he told a story in one of his sermons about this woman that he had been ministering to at his church where he was at in, in Virginia before he ended up in, in New York City where he's been ministering for the last few decades. And um, he said that this woman had been in, in many relationships where she'd been treated very poorly by the men in her life, and abused by many of them, and had gone from one relationship to another relationship and she was seeking help and seeking hope. And she went to a, a, a therapist and the therapist advised her, hey, what you need is to, to find your sense of meaning. You're, you're finding your sense of meaning in these relationships and that's not working out well for you. You're finding your sense of identity and hope in these, these men that are just letting you down. And what you need instead is you need to find a career. You need to find a career that will really meet all these deep needs of your heart, get some, some training and things like that, and that will change everything for you. You find your hope in this career, and, and that will help you instead of in relationships. And this woman is talking about this with a young pastor at this point. Tim Keller was very young, just getting started in ministry. And she said, you know, I was just being told to trade one area, one traditional way of looking for hope for another traditional way for looking for hope. She's like, what I, what I really need to know is that Christ is my life, that he is my hope, and that as long as I'm looking for hope outside of that, I'm going to be let down. But if I remember that Christ is my life, my life is in Christ, that will help me have all the hope I need to engage in my life in a healthier way. And this is true for us. So many times when we're worried or fearful, it is because we are looking at something and we're, we're making that thing our life. 
And Tim Keller advised people to say to things that when, when they're worried, when they're fearful, when you're, when you're devastated about something, I'm so afraid, I'm so worried, to look at the thing that you are worried about and to say, you are not my life. Christ is my life. And I, my, I am, my life is hidden with Christ in God. It is untouchable. You can't get to my life. You can't take that away from me. My life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is my life appears, then I also will appear with him in glory. And we wait for that. We wait for the return of Christ. We wait to be made wholly new where our identity and our practices will match up completely one day. That day will come. And we wait for that with hope in our hearts. And that affects how we live our lives on this side of eternity. We, we set our mind on things that are above, and that includes heaven, that includes this, this new reality about who we are. And some people might think that if you set your mind on things above, that that makes you less effective on things below. And there's a great quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, and if you know me, you know I love to quote C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller. We got both today. Um, he says this, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so effective, ineffective, in this. So we wait, but it's not a passive waiting. One of the commentaries I was using in preparation for this message talked about two different ways of waiting. While we wait for this to be transformed fully and wait for what is to come in our life, you know, this glorious appearance of God where we will appear with him in glory as well. We don't wait like a child waiting for the rain to stop so they can go outside and play. Right? This is this just like, I want to go outside and play, but that rain is going, and until that rain stops, I cannot do anything. And so they sit there, and they're antsy, and they're bored, and they're frustrated, just waiting for that rain to stop and the sun to come out from behind the clouds. We don't wait like that. We wait more like the person who's expecting company at their house. You know, that kind of waiting. You're cleaning stuff, you're putting stuff in that room, you're putting stuff in a drawer, folding something, you know, wiping something down, right? It is an active, engaged kind of waiting. That's how we wait. There's a woman that was talking about teaching her Sunday school class, and she says, one, one day I taught my young class the story of Jesus visiting Mary and Martha. I carefully explained how Martha had hurried to clean the house and cook a special meal. Then I paused and I asked, what would you do if Jesus was coming to visit your house today? One little girl quickly responded, I'd put the Bible on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Our identity, who we are in Christ, and, and how real that is in our minds, 
largely affects how we live our lives. We want to set our mind on things above. I'm going to pray that God will help us to do that. Lord, we thank you for these truths from your scripture. We thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who set our minds on things above. And Lord, let, let us live in the reality of who we are in you and what you've done with our lives and who, the fact that we are new creations, holy, beloved, chosen because of you. And Lord, I pray for anyone who has yet to put their faith in you, Lord, anyone in this room, anyone viewing us online or listening, Lord, that you would help, that, that, that your spirit would speak to hearts, call people into your family even right now. Help us to put our trust, not in the things around us that call us to put our trust in them, but to put our hope and our trust firmly in you. Help us to turn away from our sins and to receive this gift of salvation that you freely offer. And Lord, for all of us who are your followers, who all of us who are your children, Lord, we, our mindsets so often are, are wrong about ourselves and about who we are. And, and we try to do things that we believe you want us to do, but we do them in our own effort without this proper mindset of who we are. It's the, the outcome-based goals instead of these identity-based goals. This is who I am, and so this is how I live. And Lord, we want to be people who, who live and walk in righteousness and holiness and bring you honor and glory with every aspect of our life, the way we address other people, whether or not we tell the truth, the way we face sexual temptation. Lord, these all have to do with our identity and knowing that we are who you say we are, that we died. We're now risen with you and, and we are in you and our life is in you. And anything else that, that tempts us to say that that is our life, Lord, may we, may we deny that and may we say, no, you're our life. Help us to know the truth in our minds and in our hearts, Lord, and help that truth give us freedom that we need. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.